Marxism Bao is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron, the host of the Foxes and Fowl podcast. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Jason Biasi, who holds the Butler Chair in Homiletics, which is a fancy word for preaching, and Biblical Interpretation at the Vancouver School of Theology. Jason's a pastor, a journalist, a writer, an academic, and an all-around great guy, and I'm thrilled that he's taken some time to talk to us today. I was especially interested in talking to Jason about the idea of vocation, or calling, sorting out what it is we are supposed to do with ourselves, what we're meant for. But we cover an awful lot of things in a short period of time. I hope you enjoy the conversation. <laughs> I'm the one with the least amount to do. Yeah, right. Reverend Dr. Jason Biasi, welcome to the Foxes <laughs> and Fowl podcast. Uh, this is really exciting. Thank I'm really you. glad you're here. Thanks for thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Uh, I'm very pleased that you are our first interview. Uh, as we as we seek to have conversations that matter uh, about things first of many millions. Yeah, I hope so. Here we go. <laughs> Starting setting the bar high right off the top. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's jump right into it. Uh, you know, lots of people know you. Lots of people don't. How, I, I think the question on everybody's mind is, uh, how did a guy, a pastor from North Carolina end up in the seminary in Vancouver, BC. <laughs> well, you know, lots of Americans threatened to leave uh, after the 2016 election, and I'm one of the blessed few who made it. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the way Christians think about these things is we think about a call from God. And um, my spouse and I had always said we want to raise our kids outside the U.S. for part of their time growing up. And uh, we just thought it would be Europe or Africa. And um, so an opportunity came in Canada, and apparently Canada sort of qualifies for outside the U.S., depending on who you talk to. Um, and more importantly, um, uh, I had really wanted to try teaching full time. I'd only taught kind of off the side of my desk while pastoring. And um, it was Martin Marty, actually, the sort of still living legend of, from Christian Century and University of Chicago, who said, well, the real joy in teaching is watching students grow from uh, where they come in to where they end. And he said, you know, you just don't get that in adjunct work because you're not with the same bunch for three years. And he's mm. could not have been more right. So to meet students before they start and then to see where they're leaving to go do ministry, that's really the, the glory of this kind of work. Um, and then the other bit is, uh, you know, I got to tell you, when the first email came from Richard Topping, I deleted it. I didn't even politely respond. Um, and uh, my mentor, Will Willeman, got in touch and said, look, I'm not saying you should you're going to get this job or that you should take it, but uh, you should talk to this guy because you're going to like him. And so getting to work for somebody who um, is helping revitalize a whole seminary um, as part of re-envisioning a church ecology in a place like the West coast of Canada, that's, that's the other payoff for me. That's great. Uh, that, that's uh, you, you've nicely set up my, my second question, <laughs> which is excellent. <laughs> uh, thank you for doing that. 
Uh, I want to. I, I want to. Part of what we want to talk about in this podcast is is vocation. I think that's something that's not talked about enough, particularly maybe in in Christian circles or mainline circles. We often mm. uh, tell our young folks to go off and get their education, and then come back, and we'll tell them how they should be living for the glory of God <laughs> uh, in whatever <laughs> they decide to do. Um, but I, I wonder if if you could talk to me about your sense of vocation, because I I experience you as kind of multivocational. <laughs> And yeah. and I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if you consider the things that you do as kind of part of a whole or like you know so you're a preacher a pastor you 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 write lots of books I don't know how you do this I've never actually seen you write uh, but you keep pumping out books so yeah I have a really sneaky ghostwriter that's the, <laughs> that's the secret and you have a new, you have a brand new book which which I hope we might get a chance to get to uh, Northern Lights resurrecting the church in Northern England so that's that's mm-hmm. got to be I'm looking forward to talking a bit about that. That's so new. I don't even own it. My my Jason Biasy section is right there. <laughs> the I got to tell you, right Aaron, I, uh, I don't own it either. Um, uh, a couple of my friends have texted me photos, so they've gotten copies. But uh, what a great topic, vocation. I mean, um, you know, you're kind to call me vo- multivocational. I feel sort of uh, like multi-personality at times. Um I mean, the way I try and describe the whole thing is I'm trying to serve the church as a teaching pastor. Um, and uh, that's taken different forms for me. Pa- parish ministry, as you mentioned, magazine editing and writing, uh, book writing, traveling and speaking, um, pastoring on Sundays. And um, in a way, um, it's a, I mean, I like to say it's trying to make ADD work for me, right? Like um, <laughs> if I get bored with something, I can go over here and work on something else. Um, it has been some deep frustration, I have to admit, um, wondering, and, and, and the frustration is like this, look, perfectly capable people are spending all their energy trying to do one of these things well. Mm-hmm. And so aren't I um, really dishonoring my colleagues by trying to kind of uh, spend part of my attention on fields that take you know, all of one's imagination? Um, I guess what holds them together is trying to discern Christ in surprising places, trying to um, to discern where the church is um, being born in new guises. And, uh, um, and there are different aspects of each of those jobs that interest me. So being a journalist means you get to be nosy. I mean, this is what you get to do on the podcast. You, you know, yeah. like, it'd be weird to just walk right up to someone and say, tell me about your vocation. But like, you can say, hey, I got a podcast. And it's like a perfectly normal thing to ask, you know. Um, I find that with uh, when I travel, you know, if I'm working on a book, I can say, hey, I'm working on a book, sit down and talk to me. And people be like, oh, okay, cool. If I was just like a private citizen asking that, they'd be like, whatever, creeper, you know, go away. (laughs) Um, It all does come back to serving the church for me in the sense that God's people gathering to worship and then bless their neighbors is the heart of the vocation. And I really believe that's where God does God's most interesting saving work. So any of these other things are, are trying to serve that. Um, you do get people in church adjacent uh, vocations who are really trying to avoid the church, right? Like if, I, if I'm a bureaucrat or if I'm a professor or whatever, then I don't have to deal with, you know, people calling me at home or going to meetings. And um, I understand that temptation, but I'm trying to avoid it. <laughs> but you don't care if the roof springs a leak. <laughs> I, it is nice not to care about the roof. I do have a meeting tonight to go through the Zoom uh, plan for Sunday morning, and right. you know that's church. You got to do that stuff. But it's true. I'm I am not on point if uh, you know the janitor needs hiring or something. So, 
that's that's good. I certainly your writing has been a gift to me, and I know I know lots. So I'm glad you're doing all of these things. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to have an office right right below you. <laughs> that's right. If we're unhappy better. with each other, we just sort of bang on the floor or the ceiling, as it were. You know. Well, and you and I both uh, uh, have taken a lot from Eugene Peterson, who who I think was. I don't think he ever thought of his, his writing and his pastoring and, and his teaching as a separate yeah. thing, but part of a coherent whole. Right. But, yeah, he's an amazing model for this. Um, in a way, it worked for him by being a misfit in all those places. So um, I don't think he ever felt at home teaching at Regent. I think he always felt like an outlier, which is weird because he's Regent's most famous faculty person ever by a lot. Um <laughs> I don't know that he ever felt at home in the parish in the sense that, uh, you know, he would say weird things like, Hey, I'm, I'm not available in the morning. Cause I'm reading Carl Bart, you know, or I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm not available. Cause I'm praying all morning. Like who does that? Like, I don't, I know a lot of pastors. I don't know any of them who do that. Even the ones who think it'd be a good idea or tell that story, you know? <laughs> um, uh, and, and truly Eugene was painfully shy. Um, so, you know, his wife, Jan, you know, it's one of those people who she's in the room for 10 minutes and she's met everybody and has plans to, you know, be in touch with her grandchildren. Uh, Eugene's one of those, was one of those people who would just much rather pray alone. Um, but I guess I, I do wonder about that. Like how, how does Jesus sort of give us um, gifts that are weird fit for the way we've structured things. And Eugene's a great example of that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess part of your problem is you're just too likable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Too eager to fit in. Um, no, that's not true. Uh, well, I mean, you're totally likable. but uh... Well, there are these legends around Regent of how, you know, Eugene went to the Regent bookstore one time and, said uh any of you guys heard of a band called to you <laughs> and uh, bill reimer was like i think you mean you too <laughs> and he was like yeah so some guy named bono left a note on my door like he's in town or something he wants to get together like who is this guy anyway uh so yeah he's in one way he's a misfit uh in another way like he got bono's attention i you know i don't know how to make all that sense of all that well i mean yeah I, I think uh, I, I find just the way that you you hold things, uh, it seems to me coherently. I mean, you may feel otherwise, but but on the surface, you're pulling it off. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> uh, you. you know, it's it's encouraging to to someone who is, shares part of the vocation. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the the sort of academic side of things is is uh, you know maybe a little more forefront than it has been in, in, in other in other seasons of life. And yes. I, I'm wondering about, uh, I want to ask you a couple of things about uh, academia. And the, the first is, um, maybe we'll get the easy one, or maybe this isn't easy, but what's the best academic advice you ever got? <laughs> you, you, and I'm asking you that because I know some of the guys you've hung out with. <laughs> and, uh, you know. I have gotten some good advice over the years. Um, uh maybe that's the hard question we can <laughs> well um i mean the way i've tried to think about it with some advice from people is um i mean the, the patristic and medieval churches um 
it would not have been weird for preachers and pastors to be academics and vice versa. In fact, it, what would have been weird would be to think you could do one of those things without the other, which doesn't mean everybody has equal gifts or does the same kind of work. Um, uh, and you see glimpses of this in churches like Catholic and Anglican churches where even people in academic posts um, also have a parish responsibility, even if they're just turning up and saying mass occasionally. I think that there's some integrity there. Um, so there's a weird way in which in modernity, we've sort of ripped apart what really belongs together in God's economy. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I think when I'm in academic settings, I sound awfully preachery. And when I'm in it, what I've really tried hard to avoid, Aaron, is I, I do not want to let lay people dismiss me by saying, well, they're a professor, so I can't understand them. So mm. the temptation people with degrees have of showing up and sounding smart but obscure, um, I'm just not going to let that happen if I can help it. Um, uh, and I find, you know, a lot of lay people really want to think hard about God. Um, mm. They just haven't really been invited to do that. Um and once they catch a glimpse of it, it's kind of intoxicating. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Sachs uh, of Blessed Memory um, liked to say Christian theology is too important to leave to the Christians. So he and his fellow Jews <laughs> were going to kind of wade in and do some of our work for us. And um, I, I sort of want to say theology is too important to leave to theologians, right? Like, um, uh, well, here's a piece of advice. Jeffrey Wainwright would say this. Um, uh, a theologian is anyone with two thoughts about God to rub together. Um, so uh, most people we pray with have more than two thoughts about God to rub together. And so our charge is to take what we've spent time and energy. That's what theological education is. It's time and energy um, steeping in this tradition to say, well, here's what Christians have said about this. Here's a kind of range of options. We've said, this is outside the range for this reason. This is outside the range for this reason. Now go add something, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, God's trying to say something through you that God can't say any other way. Um, and I, I do find there's a kind of vocational summons that lay people often have, usually not to leave their work and go to seminary. That happens, but it's a headache and it's expensive and spouses get mad and so on. I mean, it's usually to serve God with a, with a new kind of attentiveness uh, within their um within their vocations that they have always been in. Cool. Yeah, you, you, you've said to me, I'm not sure it's some, if it's someone else's quote or if it's just your insight, but uh, you, you can always tell, uh, oh, there are two kinds of smart people, people who like let you know how smart they are and you're not sure what they said, but you know they're real smart and people who are real smart and they change your life by saying it in a way that you can pick up what they're putting down. I think I'm uh, riffing off Sam Wells there. Right, well, it's a, it's a it's a good thing. Um, and you, you've, you've said to me, and I think it's kind, and it's going to lead me to my next question, but you know, the God, the God's got something to say through you that, uh, that, that no one else can say that, that, that God only mm. has. So, I mean, it, I think that's, that's part of the vocation uh, question, but uh, you know, one of, one of the things, one of the ways I experience you anyways, is, as a, as a generous academic, and uh, I'm not, I'm not sure that, uh, generosity is the first word that comes to mind when I think of <laughs> academics, generally speaking. But I, I mean, I've, I've watched it happen. I've watched you take seriously students who are completely out to lunch. Uh, I've watched you uh, have, have intense conversations with people who you disagree with, but uh, you're going to stick, <laughs> you're, you're here for the conversation, you're here, here for them. 
And so I wonder if, and, and I guess the other thing is, I mean, this is, this is at least the third podcast that I've heard you on that was just getting off the ground. <laughs> so you're, you're giving your time to, to folks who are trying to do a thing. Um, and, and, I, and, and I really appreciate that. So I wonder if you could talk to me about generosity. And I think, I think mm -hmm. maybe you mentioned earlier curiosity. I think I, mm -hmm. my, my guess is those two things are correlated uh, or have something, some overlap. And maybe you can yeah. tell me about that. What a, what a great question and put really kindly. Thank you. Um, some of that is watching Stanley Harawas, who in his vocation as a theologian feels like um, his job is to say yes to what the church asks him to do. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't first calculate, you know, is this going to help me in some way? Um, I mean, of course, you know, there are mercenary kind of elements to what you say yes or no to at times, but um I mean, in a way, VST pays me so that I can be available to the church. So the burden of proof would be on me saying no to something, you know. Um, some of it's watching others that I admire. So uh, Rowan Williams had this essay on the city of God um, that was really important for me and uh, really important broadly. And it was published in a journal called the Milltown Review, which is the Irish Jesuit uh, <laughs> academic publication. And we couldn't find it. So in graduate school... Yeah, in graduate school, somebody got their hands on it, and we were passing it around and Xeroxing it like it was some kind of contraband, you know. Uh, <laughs> and sure enough, you know, somebody would find it and read it and be like, oh, my God, my life is different. Have you seen it? Do you have this? You know, do you want it? I've got it. You know, now it's in his, you know, it's a, it's in a recent collection of essays on Augustine, so it's much easier to get, much less sexy. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I'm sure it's because he did a talk for some Irish Jesuits and they asked if they could publish it and he dropped it on them, you know? So um, I guess I think, you know, it is a ridiculous privilege to get to talk about God to people who care um, and who will make you work out kind of and push you around a little about it. And you come out different from that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, I mean, the, you know, main reason would be I'm selfish and I like these kinds of conversations uh, there. It's, I'm still slightly baffled if anybody wants to read anything I write or engage with something that I say. And so I, I, I find that maybe you could say the minute that stops being fun, then you should probably do something else. You, know? <laughs> uh, sure. you remind me too. Um, I've been reading a lot of Robert Jensen for a class mm -hmm. I'm teaching. And uh, um, there was a, a Feshrift essay on Jensen that was republished after he died. And I'm trying to remember, David Yeager wrote it. And it was about how he would watch Jensen with a student struggling in his class. And Jensen wouldn't take the microphone away from them. He would uh, try and draw out from them the things that needed to be said. I mean, it would be an easy enough for Jensen to just say, okay, you're, you're not doing a good job here. Uh, I'm going to take over. Um, the interesting thing is to actually draw out what's there. And uh, I don't find myself particularly patient enough to do that well, but I, I'm convinced that's the task. Mm. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've watched you do it, so. It's <laughs> uh, kind of you. So, yeah, and um, well, I mean, I think I think you, I've, I've seen you make connections for people. I, I've seen you, I, I, I mean, I know that you wrote a book with a mutual friend who has no publishing experience at all. <laughs> and, and just having a book published with your name beside is gonna make a difference for her. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of stuff, I think goes a long way. I mean, I think it is, 
Yeah. That was something I watched Stanley Harwas do too. He would publish things with graduate students. Mm. So his name would get the piece accepted and then the student would have the benefit of that, you know, publishing piece on their CV and be off and running. So mm -hmm. if you have any kind of credibility, I think that's the right way to spend it. Um, but, you know, uh, I mean, Andrea taught me an, an enormous amount in the field. I mean, that, that book doesn't exist without her, you know, so um, I don't want to pretend it's all magnanimous, you know, uh, selfishly, sure. I learned a lot and uh, really glad to have gotten to work on that. Um, so I guess you're right. There is a kind of watching how loss do that thing. I mean, it, part of it is it, it, the way proprietary things work in academia, there's a pressure to write this way. No one has ever seen this before until I saw it and now I'm gonna copyright it and this is my thing, right? Yeah. Like um, that's what you have to be able to do to get a dissertation defended or to get a book published or to get tenure. It's exactly the opposite of our Christian forebears. Even when they're innovating, they will never tell you they're innovating. They will say, just like everyone's always said, I'm not adding anything. I'm just a you know poor schlub reading all this cool stuff. But here's the here's the deal, and then they'll say something totally revolutionary, right? So it, it's hard to read the fathers because they won't tell you when they're saying something new. Like mm. scholars have to say, this is really new. No one's ever said this before. <laughs> so I'm just talking about the kind of framing that we give for stuff. Um, I've worked before at elite university college kind of settings. And they really won't credit for tenure a book that is co-written um, or isn't published with a top flight academic press. And I understand why they do that. Um, but I, I just think it tells a lie about the way intellectual enterprises actually work, which is that they're actually cooperative enterprises. You don't learn anything by yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the top flight press, some of the things I've been most proud of, I've published with Cascade, Whip and Stock, which had just started out of a house church in Oregon uh, when I was starting to write. And now they're one of the really key presses uh, around and they don't have to return people's calls. Um, but it started with an ecclesial vision and some friends with a little time and money on their hands. And I, I guess I would just much rather do that than publish for an academic press that doesn't know your name mm. and isn't gonna do anything to try and move copies. Um, so anyway, uh, that's all stuff I stumbled into, but seems that way to me. That's great. Uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to that book. That, that's gonna be, a, I think it's gonna be a valuable book for uh, uh, Thank you. lots of people because it explores the intersection of theology and technology, right? From getting that. Sort You're of. correct. Andrea's right. title is a great one. It's uh, the book's going to be called Following. Uh, mm. And so it's the double entendre with social media and discipleship. Uh, and it, the subtitle is Embodied Discipleship in a Digital Age or World or something. Anyway, yeah, cool. excited too. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, tell us a little bit about this new one that's dropped, the, the Northern yeah. Lights. Northern Lights. So it came out of uh, seven months that my family got to spend in the north of England. We were in Durham University where um, VST has a partnership to offer PhDs. And um, I'm kind of incurably nosy. So I just spent time asking, hey, what's a church that's actually doing anything? Mm -hmm. And Durham is one of several places in the United Kingdom that claims to be the least church-going region in the country. And England's one of the least church-going places in Europe. And so it's funny, there's this sort of competition to say, no one goes to church here. No, no, really fewer people go to church here, you know? <laughs> and and yet um, there's, you know, one of the great cathedrals in the world is in Durham. Um, 
So it was partly trying to puzzle that out. Well, wait a minute. You say nobody goes to church here, but there's some people going here. Why are they doing that? Well, wait, there's this new thing over here. And actually it's working. Like, so one of the reasons that uh, BC interested me was its sort of proud status post-Christendom. I don't think that's actually correct in that I don't think BC was ever Christendom, right? But that's a separate story. England is Christendom still. Um, the fastest way to get a seat in parliament is to become a bishop and be in the House, house of Lords, right? Um, and then if anything, that's a kind of albatross around the church's neck. The perceived proximity to power turns people off. Um, so, okay, what turns people on? Why is it anybody's actually worshiping Jesus in the north of England? Um, so that's that's the contemporary angle. The, the ancient angle is that the north of England has had more than its fair share of weird saints. So Durham Cathedral is where it is because of St. Cuthbert, who was not buried there. He was buried far away, but his fellow monks dug him up and carried him around England for centuries. And uh, his grave was taken to be a site of miracles and healings and so on. Um, so he's one of these saints whose fame advanced uh, exponentially hundreds of years after he died. I don't know how to explain that, but I guess if you worship someone who you claim is resurrected, then uh, death isn't the end. And uh, so I just found that book an excuse to write about some wonderful experiments going on in the UK. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it because I, I think we're, we're both curious about the way that the church is doing its thing in places it's not supposed to do it. That's exactly right. Uh, What's this way... unauthorized ministry? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and my... yeah, you, you mentioned, I, that was my experience coming to Vancouver. Was that, like they're quite proud of their, I mean, whether they're post-Christendom or just not non-religious or- Yeah, they like to brag about that, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, I just, uh, I did a little bit of writing recently on, on Newbigin's uh, question from Foolishness to the Greeks. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think, I think people going, and I bet you're, or maybe I shouldn't impose this upon people, but my sense from the the students that I know and uh, the folks who are kind of my age and younger uh, going into ministry is that we're kind of, we're kind of happy the church is weird again. Uh, <laughs> like it, it gives us something to do. <laughs> and, you know, there are days when I wish that I could, you know, uh, just, you know, put up a sign and people might flock to my good mainline church but uh uh in the grand scheme of things i think it's going to be more fun to be a christian as, as as the years go by yeah no it's it's an amazing you mentioned peterson before right i mean his whole book the pastor is about church planting he never uses the description because they weren't using that language when he started that church in maryland but effectively uh no one's going to be inheriting a fully functioning church that they are supposed to just keep running there are none mm. so all of us are going to have to have tools to kick up trouble where there isn't any. And uh, uh, thankfully that's the Holy Spirit's always doing is kicking up trouble where there doesn't need to be. Right. Mm. Um, I use this a lot that uh, Bishop N.T. Wright likes to say, you know, as an Anglican Bishop, everywhere he goes, they serve tea everywhere. St. Paul went, there was a riot. Um, <laughs> so like, how do we, how do we get the riot back? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I often sort of, you know, it talks about, you know, losing our lives for the sake of Christ. I and mean, we would have to work real hard to, <laughs> <laughs> to get ourselves in sufficient trouble. No, that's you right. Know, to, to, uh, but maybe, maybe the, maybe the joy will be in that task. Uh, yeah. I mean, being kind of benignly ignored is something we've kind of gotten used to. Right. Um, mm. 
but I don't know. There's not a long step between being benignly ignored and being um, hostily accused. Um, right. So uh, we may have to draw on skills we haven't had for some time. You, you just said something, and I wasn't going to, this is not on my list of uh, questions, but here we go. Uh, and, and I've been thinking about this lately, and I think it applies to, to anybody who goes in to do anything in a, in a, in a pre-existing organization. So we can talk about this more broadly. It, it could be academics, it could be, I don't know, going to work in a hospital, who knows. Uh, but, you know, for, for ministers, for pastors, I, it's particularly in the main line. I, I think we had, this, we had this notion for a long time that I'm kind of pushing against right now. Not because it's not entirely true, but because I think it's not helpful, which is that the minister is sort of the, the theologian in residence, mm. um, which makes us sort of fundamentally incidental to the community. Like we could be taking it, you know, we'll just swap this guy out for another, mm. uh, you know, if this woman comes or goes, it doesn't, doesn't make much of a difference, which makes it almost impossible to, uh, I mean, you really got to work extra hard. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. convince people that they should take, you know, they, they should listen to you where you want to go mm. uh, because they don't, you know, they know you can just leave at any time. Wow. Um, right. And, and so I, I'm I, I've been wondering about this a little bit. And you, you said that every time, every time we come to a church, it's, it's kind of a plant. Uh, the Holy Spirit is kicking up new things. And, and it's got me just sort of pondering, um, the, the tension between like honoring what's what's already there, assuming that Jesus had been there before we showed up, uh, right. but also how to how to really integrate. May I don't know if you have an answer to this, but no, it's really know, good. I, I hear church what you're planting asking. allows us. Uh, church planters, I guess. I guess the church planting is difficult. Uh, ministry planting is difficult, but the the person who does the planting is never incidental to the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You know. Um, I mean, I worked at Duke Divinity School uh, in their leadership education outfit, and the language we used there was of traditioned innovation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was Greg Jones's riff off of uh, entrepreneurship, um, which is that we don't actually start stuff from scratch. We actually um, bring out of uh, the treasury what's new and what's old, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so an example from the Northern Lights book, I talk about Stockton Parish Church. Stockton's one of the kind of down in the mouth, former industrial cities in the North um, without great economic prospects. Um, and uh, the guy who took over that parish um, said he was really glad to get there when there were only five or six people left. Cause he said, I didn't have an old guard to overthrow. Like they, they weren't, wasn't enough of a critical mass to tell me no. So I could just do stuff. <laughs> now, at the same time, he inherited a magnificent building um, that's gorgeous and expensive. Um, so there's plaques and detritus and church crap everywhere. You know, this was given by this person and this was given by, and I find it a little distracting, but there's a weird way in which I, I'm not sure non-church people do. I mean, it's sort of cool to be surrounded by names you don't know and then put mm. into a community that's older than your 10 minutes ago or, and not dependent on your consumerist desires. Um, but I'll give you one weird example. So, uh, Mark says the first thing they did at the church was open the doors, literally. Like uh, these are the kinds of giant heavy doors that you couldn't see through. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, uh, the old guard, all four of them said, uh, well, we can't open the doors because it'll uh, hurt us in the heating bill. And he said, look, do you go to a restaurant? You can't look inside first. No, I don't either. Neither does anyone else. No one's coming in here. They can't look in and see that we're not, you know, murdering babies or something like let's, uh, 
let them look in. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not a metaphor. They just physically propped the doors open so people could see in right. to decide whether they wanted to poke their head in, right? Um, I think it's not a bad image for, so Mark in one way inherited nothing, just some people who didn't have enough wherewithal to stop him. And in another way, he inherited a lot. This mm -hmm. building you can't, you couldn't build if you started from nothing, right? So that's mm -hmm. a little bit of uh, tradition innovation. Um, so the trick is, I think you do have to both honor what God has previously done. You have to tell those stories until people are sick of them. Uh, and then you have to also act as though you have no built up cachet from that. Like you're starting from less than zero because actually you're in debt <laughs> mm. um, and, and you still have to um, build something out of that. Cool. Yeah, tradition innovation that's good and i should say that i you know inherited quite a lot from you inherited yeah. no it's a beautiful church <laughs> uh, and you've done beautiful new things with it yeah yeah well it's a good place to be even mm. um I, you know, I wouldn't be here without you, Hill. I didn't tell you that story earlier, but when I visited Vancouver to speak in 2007, Ed Searcy reached out and we became friends. And mm. so he was the chair of the committee that um, that uh, hired me or that suggested Richard hire me. Um, so it's one of those weird things. I've always felt really grateful to that church and to Ed's initiative. Um, and I'm struck by the gifts you bring he could have never have thought of. So mm. well, thank yeah. you. that's kind. And uh, I'm... I count myself lucky an awful lot. So, mm. anyways, uh, listen. Let's. Uh, I, I'm so grateful for your time. I want to. I want to. Want to end with this question because I think uh, you know we're having this conversation over Zoom largely because you know we're <laughs> we're doing what we're told in the midst of this pandemic, and uh, <laughs> there are a few other things going on in the world, some of which you know maybe more affecting you than me, but uh, <laughs> complicated and. You know, I, I just I, I think we're we're coming into Advent, uh, obviously, and and I'm 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 hoping to lean pretty hard into the arc of Advent, which which is you know we we if ever we were a people walking in darkness who needed a great light, I, I mean in my lifetime collectively, yeah, you know, this this is we've never been more in need of of some <laughs> some a, a acknowledgement that we're walking in darkness, yeah, uh, but also that that the great light is on its way. So, mm. um. I, I'm just, uh, you know, the, the real question out here is what, what, what's giving you hope these days? What, what are you, what are you leaning? Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I've, I've also received Advent's coming with real gratitude. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the posture of Advent of longing and hoping and sighing and um, feels appropriate. And um, I heard Rick Lisher, my old preaching professor say, um, you know, you could do a really cool Advent series just on the cries for help in Isaiah, mm -hmm. um, on the different places where the prophet cries out and asks God to rend the heavens, you know. Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's one of the weird gifts of COVID in that humanity is ill and we're longing for health. Um, as Christians, we have something to say about that. We also think humanity is diseased. Um and yet a physician has come and taken on our diseases. Um, so Sam Wells likes to say, this is one of those moments where we get to ask ourselves, well, do we believe this stuff or not? Like, it's not like we have to change what we preach to meet this moment. All our stuff is perfect to meet this moment. We're just not sure we have confidence in it anymore. Um, but uh, the other thing about Advent is it says, look, um, we know it's been a long time since Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Uh, we know that, the church and the world have been waiting for a long time, 
But look, we waited for a long time before. <laughs> um, <laughs> Israel was in the position of longing for help. 40 years in the wilderness, 400 years in slavery, uh, centuries in exile. Um, and each of those experiences taught Israel, your only hope is in the God of Jacob. Um, you're going to be tempted to trust in empires, uh, in your own status, even in your own land, your own temple. And you're going to have to learn that none of them can be taken for granted. They can all go away. The only thing that cannot go away is God. Um, so in Advent, we Christians say, um, yes, we understand it's taken too long. It always seems to take too long. And yet God does come. And then when God, when God comes, you're going to say, whoa, that was too fast. We weren't ready. Like so many of Jesus's parables are about that. Like, well, we weren't ready, right? right. Like, well, how much more time did you want? <laughs> um, uh, and so what Advent says is, look, um, it took too long. And yet God came right underneath the ribs of an unmarried peasant girl from the sticks, right? Mm -hmm. um, so God came at great personal involvement and expense. Advent says God is going to come again with great personal involvement and at God's own expense. Um, we couldn't have imagined how it was going to happen last time, but it was more glorious than we could have conceived. Um, the analogy will hold. It will come and it will be more beautiful than we could have imagined. Um, so Lord, bring that day. God. Isn't it good to know that he is the God of Jacob? You know, that was Jacob's name when he was still a rascal before he was blessed. That's right. <laughs> yeah, God so. seems to wed all the wrong people. It's good news for those of us who are the wrong people. Amen. All right, man. You're a gift to me and a gift to the Your church. Guys. And I'm so Thanks, grateful man. for this time. And uh, I'm going to look forward to talking to you again soon. That'll be great. Blessings on this endeavor, Aaron. I'm so glad you're doing it. Thanks, man. All Take right. care. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason as much as I did. Here's a few things I'm thinking about from our time. A key question when we're thinking about vocation and trying to discern what we're called to do is to ask who are we serving? Or who are we meant to serve? Vocation isn't just about what we want to do. In the words of Frederick Beekner, it's about where our deep joy meets the world's deep need. Second thing. God has something to say through you that can only be said through you. You and your gifts are not incidental to what God is doing. Third thing, all learning is collaborative. We need others and others need us. And the fourth thing, it's a privilege to get pushed around a bit if it means that we get to work our, out our ideas about God, ourselves, and the world a little more clearly. Thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you next time. Bye.